God of War, The Magpie Murders, and Jurassic Perk. This is Staying In. The thing that's really got me sort of pumped is that it's still <laughs> light outside. Like, usually, usually when we're recording at like seven-ish or whatever, it's totally dark, but now it's like light. You're so pumped that you've got your curtains drawn. Well, I could open them, couldn't I? Don't. The the problem is, otherwise the neighbourhood children look in and uh, they sort of they sort of peer in through the window and see me talking into a microphone. I mean, I mean, you could you could just put on a shirt and it wouldn't be so awkward. <laughs> and trousers. Remember that episode where your Tesco shopping arrived midway, oh. and Dan and I could Dan and I were waving to the Tesco's delivery person, and he clocked us. Oh God! Does anyone? Um, um, what was everyone's favourite? Let's call them It's Still Light Outside game. So let's think. Kirby what? was probably my favourite one as a kid. Kirby? Kirby. Did you never play Kirby? The, as in the little, the little pink Nintendo guy? No, Kirby spelt with a C. Oh, right. Is this, is this one of these, like, post office knockoff toy things? No, it's a... Uh, what part of the, of the lead-up to this question do you not understand? As a child... Most of it. As, okay, so as a child, yeah. what was your favourite It's Still light, Lighty lighty Evening Fun games? Let's, I don't oh. know, like, so like Rally 1, 2, 3 or Kirby. I mean, those are the only two I played, so those are the only two <laughs> I can talk about. Um, um, Sam, Sam, you're labouring under the misapprehension that Pete played outside when he was a child. Because <laughs> we, um, we had a blisteringly hot bank holiday weekend. And we did. We all sent images out of what we're doing. Sam, you're in the garden with Poppy. Lovely mm-hmm. day. I was out gallivanting yep. around Wales. Pete was. It, <laughs> Pete sent us uh, a photo from his living room, which appeared to be a very intensive RPG you were currently engaged in. <laughs> oh no, 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 not at all. I was, I was at the, I was at the office, which we had Great. decided that we'd pulled all the tables together, and we were playing, <laughs> we were playing Bushido, a uh, a miniatures war game, and uh, yeah, like it was boiling in there, <laughs> but. but um, but was it as good as Kirby? Yeah, what is what is Kirby? So as far as I remember, and Dan will probably correct me on this, is you got a, you had a football. It's a two-player game. I guess you could play in other teams if you wanted to, but it was essentially a two-player game. So me and my brother would play on the curb outside our house, and you'd have both players on either side of the curb, and one player on either side of the road, on the side of the road, and would you walk to the centre of the road? Hence, you know, it was the 90s, danger, and... It was the M5 motorway. <laughs> and you'd... Oh, no, you wouldn't walk to the middle of the road, would you? You'd... No, you, you, no, you would be either side of it. There was no ceremonial coming together in the, se- in the centre where you bowed at each other and stepped back. The Christmas truce. So if you, you threw the ball from your side of the curb, and if it hit their curb and came back to you, then you got a point and it was your go again. But if they were able to intercept the ball at any point, yeah. then then they then it was like their serve. And then like if you threw the ball and it hit the curb and it came back to you without landing on the floor, then in our version of the game we got to walk to the middle of the road and have like a free hit. Like it was like you've done a really good thing. And then but and here's a twist: if when you're in the middle of the road, <laughs> you threw the ball. And somehow your brother, because it was just my brother, got the ball. And as you're running away back to your side of the curb, they could throw the ball and hit you in the back. They like got five points. I can't. I, I, I'm sure the rules are somewhere online, but that. Was I mean, I played a similar game. My version of the game didn't have a 30-page rule book, which Sam <laughs> seems to have had. Uh, my version of the game was one person standing either side of the road. Uh, you have a football. Um, and you take it in turns to kick the football and you have to hit mm. the curb. Obviously, when you, if you hit that curb, kind of without it bouncing prior to that, it will bounce back to you. You get a point and then obviously you get another go because it's come back to you. And that's, it's a game of just trying to get as many points as possible going either side of the road. So if you miss, if it lands too short or too far, then it's the other person's go. And that, that was the game. We didn't have right. kind of these 
rules where you had to hop into the middle and close your eyes and turn around three times and jump up and down. That's in the official Kirby rules. If the ball hits a curb cleanly and bounces back to the player, then they score a point. Having scored, they keep the ball and move to the middle of the road and attempt the same again. I mean, it's I can't really see it on Sky Sports. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm very impressed at this. I'm trying to think about what games we used to play. We used to play Manhunt quite a lot. What? I, what? Like the video game or uh, yeah yeah on the on the mean streets of royal tunbridge wells <laughs> uh, no it was um it was more like manhunt as in the game that you might play in the scouts where basically it's kind of like hide and seek but you're pretending that it's more than that because you're you're 15 or whatever and like <laughs> it was the kind of thing where you could go pretty like basically we could go pretty wide like there was the whole local neighborhood area it's like a little suburby area then there was a whole park and then a woods at the back of most of the kids that lived in my street's gardens and then that went further out into another place then you could get a taxi yeah i mean honestly i mean pete's still playing this game now really far yeah we never found him it went really that's why i moved to bristol uh um yeah i mean like it was it was pretty intense actually. And those I do remember those going on for hours and hours and hours. And then just as it was getting darker, darker and darker and darker, it meant that you could do more like intense things, like you could climb up trees and hide in plain sight and stuff like that. Oh, it was great. I remember a game, and I I don't remember why it was called this. And so maybe someone <laughs> will remember it being called this, and maybe it was just a Birmingham thing. But it was called. Oh no! Aki is this going to be a dodgy three. racist thing? Like, yeah, is this Wacky One Two Three? That rings a bell. Dan. Aki, what was it called? I think it was a similar thing to Pete. What you're talking about, where it was kind of like a hide and seek uh, slash TIG hybrid, where That's... everyone would hide and then whoever was yeah. on would try and find them. But you, the person hiding, had to get back to a central point. Yeah, we right. called so you that Rally One get... Two Three. Pardon? We called that Rally One Two Three. Okay, so yeah, we would call that Aki One Two Three. I don't quite know where that name comes from. Uh, it may have just been my road. But that was what that was what we would play. But I, similar to Sam, the entire street. Yeah. Like no matter what their age. But to be fair, we lived. I lived by. A We're park playing as well, Auntie so. Jean. Come on, everyone. Aki, one, two, three. Come on, John. We were all playing. I was watching <laughs> snooker. <laughs> the perch. <laughs> Last one left dies. Gets killed. At, the, at Dan's butchers. Oh God. Where did you live, Dan? <laughs> well, um, hang on a minute you're the one who's getting taxis to try to hide away from people you live with <laughs> oh man but those those were those were like if you were allowed like you knew when you were a kid ah oh, i'm staying out later than i should really be allowed out because it's still light and therefore there's no danger yeah. <laughs> like that was also that was always the thing as well it was like oh it's light out therefore there's clearly no danger like Clearly nothing uh, bad has ever happened in daylight. Except for the time I went out cycling without any socks on. And I got, I got my ankle caught in the uh, in the wheel. And because I wasn't wearing any socks, it just like the wheel just grinded up against my ankle. Oh, <laughs> why? Got your ankle caught in the wheel? <laughs> so what were you doing? Cycling wrong. How wide are the spokes? <laughs> I can't remember how it happened, but I, to that day, I've never, ever gone cycling without any socks on. That's where, you know, it's like knee-high socks. <laughs> I bet you were the kind of kid who got those things that you could add to a bike from cereal Spoky packets. Dokies. Yeah, what, like, you would put, you would, like, fix them to your spokes, and then they yeah. would, like, slide up and down on the... Spoky dokies. Yeah. Is that what they're called? Spoky yeah, dokies? spoky dokies. You got them in packets of Frosties. Yeah. Yeah, you said, and you also have the stuff that you would attach to the spokes, and when the wheel went round, they would kind of rattle. Yeah. I mean, we were basically the kids from Stranger Things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are the inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically Yeah, I did decide to... I don't want to say waste, uh, but I did use uh, a lot of my bank holiday weekend uh, staying inside and playing with toy soldiers, which was... Have you finished painting them all, Pete? They've all been finished. I've painted all of them. So in the starter set, you get... So I play Temple of Rokan, uh, which, as I'm sure you'll know, uh, you get five models in the starter set. Uh, and it took me... On and off, about six months to paint them. Whoa. 
How many? Uh, uh, f- just just the five uh well i had to do the whole process right so i have not done minute i had not done miniature painting you had to create in the paint 15 years yeah i had to go and find the oil <laughs> grinding up beetles to get that proper red color yeah that's right um i so yeah i'd not i'd not done any miniature painting in like 15 or 16 years and so this was the first time I'd done it. So I, I went through the whole process and this chap from work, uh, he helped me through the whole thing. He was very, very patient. And um, he showed me how to glue all of them together and not stick my hand to the table because uh, they're made of, uh, I think- they're <laughs> That's kind of rule 101, isn't I mean, it really? That is basically- it is, but I do distinctly remember as a child gluing my hand to the desk. I like the so... idea of like Pete walking into that first lesson, like dragging a table behind him as it's stuck to his hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is what happened last time. So um, they're made of, I think they're called pewter, maybe they're not resin, I don't know. They're sort of metallic, uh, basically. Um, they're this metal rather than plastics that you get. So I had to, I had to delicately sort of glue all of them together and they were a right, pain at times because uh, they had really thin bits for the arms you had to glue all them on and then when they were all glued properly um, I had to spray them uh, to do an undercoat so you spray them with um, like a yeah. white or a black and I chose white because white means that the colours that you paint on top of them are slightly brighter rather than black gives you better shadows um, and they're quite a bright vibrant group this, so this Bushido game is like this um, fantasy orient um, kind of a skirmish game where you only have few few number of characters so each of the characters is really important they're all like named and therefore you have to kind of put a bit of time and effort into them rather than like these really big games like Gates of Antares and um, I don't know uh, some of the bolt action stuff like where you've, you're basically just painting 20 of the same dude so these are all very separate so I went through that sprayed them then did all the base colors which is where you put the different base colors so like it, they most of them are all brown and green so they're like browns and greens and, and they're metals and, and pete yeah when when did you start having fun <laughs> so i will admit this i did not have it fun. was kind of, it was kind of yeah no it was kind of like a bell curve so i was starting to have fun when i purchased them because i was like i'm so excited i'm really um, I can't... that's not how a bell curve works but go on yeah bell curve is right yeah bell, bell... a bell curve starts <laughs> at the bottom as in I'm oh, okay. not interested. Okay, so, okay, well, at the start... If, if I had a cathedral and I had bells that were shaped like that... Okay, well, <laughs> well, okay, uh, uh, confession. Two things, not my strong point. One, not gluing my hands to desks. <laughs> Two, maths. Uh, so, the, the first part... So, at the start of the bell curve is, I do not know about the game Bushido. Yes. Uh, and then, and then uh, I, I purchased them, an immediate spike... Yeah. Uh, and I was very, very excited because I've not done any of this miniature wargaming for like a really long time. And then, and then waiting for them to turn and then, and then getting the pack and thinking, oh, I'm going to have so much fun and starting to read the rules and, and backstory and all that sort of stuff that comes with the manual. Now, then there was a big drop when I had to like glue them together because I, they were really, really fiddly and I just wasn't used to it. And I was just terrified this entire time that I was just going to like lose bits and like all that sort of stuff. That's mainly because I haven't done it like for ages. And then right back up again. Uh, which is um, again not how a bell curve works, but go on. Well, this is I mean, my new. This it's is a lovely description of what stalactites look. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, can, it, can we call it the stalactite graph? Is that no? Is it's that called right? a sine wave. Is that what it's called? Sine wave. It's like a sine wave. Yeah. Okay, it's like a sine wave. I tell, I tell you um, what, Pete. You can draw the graph, and we'll put it on Twitter. Geez. All right. <laughs> yeah, just be me <laughs> holding a crayon. Yeah. So, um, and then yeah, the painting of it was really fun. I really enjoyed that. And then. What you're alluding to, Sam, is when did you actually start playing? Um, and yeah, that was last weekend. Um, and oh my, oh my God, um, it is really, it's a really great game. But I forgot how to play it. You spent so long painting. Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I forgot how complex miniatures games are. Like you guys think, like tabletop, like board games are can be very, very challenging. There are lots of very challenging board games, but miniature games are a different kind of challenging like in what way in the way that so bushido has about 40 pages of rules and they are all it's almost as long as kirby yeah it's almost as long as a a game (laughs) of kirby and uh those 40 pages of rules are all very important and all of the miniatures they all have statistics that you need to know what they do they also have traits as in they do specific things so like in collectible card games this would be like a keyword in magic so it'd be like 
trample or, I don't know, an instant or something like that. Um, so they all have keywords and key symbols and you need to know what they are because they help you figure out what your strategy is in the game. And you're constantly moving back and forth between these, you know, 40-odd pages of rules to try and figure out, okay, how does this phase work? How does this step within this phase work? And and a lot of the start of learning a tabletop game like this is that. Like, it is basically like the first game that you play is basically getting that that down and, like, referencing stuff between different books and different cards and all that kind of thing. But I'd forgotten how much I love that kind of thing. I, I Like, it's super nerdy, like, really, really geeky to to play. And each game did take us about two hours. Um, and, were, and were you playing with people who had also had already had like a familiarity with Bushido? No, and that was the point. Like, oh, wow. like so. So what made you? What made you all choose Bushido? Um, because it looked really neat. Like we, like uh, my uh, colleague Tom from work basically saw it at UK Games Expo, which I'm hoping to go to this year. Um, and he was like, "This looks really cool," and picked up a pack. And um, then we were all like, that, that does look really cool. And then a couple more of us bought it. And then we were like, we should really play this at some point. So then we spent like months and months and months putting it all together. And then we, then we finally, last weekend, actually played a game of it. And yeah, like it's a really different experience. Like Sam, you were saying, you've said before that like you always want, you want one of each kind of game in your collection. And like miniatures games are a very different thing that I don't think you'll have experienced before. And, and, I'm just trying to think about how you would go about starting that because, like, I'd played you know tabletop war games a decade and a half before that, and I vaguely knew what I was doing, and it took two or three hours. Whereas, like, just somebody new straight out the gate, I have no idea how they would get into it. Um, I just, I, I don't think I could ever own it. I think I'd love to play one. Mm. I'd like to go to a place. I just love to just play them. It fascinates me. Yeah, absolutely. But I just don't think. You, for me, it seems like you you can't do it very light. It's got to be all in. Yeah, to really get the most out of the it. commitment is like huge. Like it's 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 a massive learning curve, and it's. And I know Sam's getting married next year. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and he's getting a new bathroom fitted. Yeah, exactly. Well, Chris, you are, Chris, you are planning the stag, so here we go. Oh, I know. I was just. Do you know what, Dan? I was just thinking that. I was thinking maybe I should rub that past Sam. Bushido stag. Stag idea. What? Yeah. Get like what? Loads and loads of tabletop games in. Oh, that'd be that'd be great. He'd love Let that. the gluing commence. <laughs> so, Dan, like, what games have you been playing with Toby while the sun is still shining at this hour? Well, when the sun is still shining, um, we we tend not to spend too much time indoors will kind of take the opportunity to go out and about um even if it's just at the road go shopping to get him out of the house or go to kind of coffee shop and stuff like that i tell you what when i've got a now i've got a baby the coffee shops i go to are very different in the past i may have gone to an independent uh, coffee shop or maybe just a starbucks or a costa which everyone kind of available those famous um, independent coffee shops yeah well i led with independent and then in addition um, to independent yeah, yeah, coffee yeah, shops, the fa- there those are Starbucks mom and pop and coffee shops. So. Support your local one. Have you have you been to that um, Starbucks? I think you're fine. I did lead with the independent. That, that's obviously where the preference sits. But not everyone has a good independent coffee shop near them. But most people have a a, a branded one near them if they don't have an independent one. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the uh, coffee shop instead that I chose to yeah. go to is called Jurassic Perk. And Jurassic Perk is okay, a dinosaur-themed yeah. coffee shop for children. So you you go, you go inside. You depending on the children you take with you, you pay for their entry. Um, so for Toby, he's a he's under one, so we pay two pound. Um, and there's lots of tables that like kind of parents can sit down. Uh, but in this in this uh, coffee shop, adorning all of us. And I tell you what, this place has had some money put into it, even though it's it's an independent place it's not obviously a franchise there's a lot of money gone into it the walls are all adorned with kind of wood panelling and kind of long grass leaves and on the ceiling kind of reaching out from the ceiling you've got all these different dinosaurs like a T-Rex or a Triceratops or a Raptor just kind of looking at there's a pterodactyl on the ceiling these aren't just painted no Barney these though. are these are three dimensional <laughs> what was that? No Barney. No Barney. No Barney. We're, we're talking proper dinosaurs here. Um, yeah, but but Chris, they they paid the money to have Jeff Goldblum stand there every month and just shake his head and go, <laughs> "Nature finds a way." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clever girl. Uh, 
so you so you've got that the deck the decoration of of the the coffee shop is all these dinosaurs which is amazing they've got this big kind of soft play area for kind of slightly older children there's also a large room which has the floor is kind of just covered in like tiny spotlights which kind of play colorful patterns and stuff that the baby kind of sits on and i just had a whale of a time in there i sat there having having a cup of tea having a cup of coffee just sat in like a a room with toby on the floor having a great old time very different to any other kind of coffee shop i've ever been to how much is it to go as an adult if toby's two pounds well if like if i went on my own oh god you're grift (laughs) (laughs) well you pay independent coffee shop grift you pay for your coffee and your tea and anything you wish to purchase but just as an entry fee you pay nothing as an adult all right brilliant well i'm on board then so you're only paying for the child Obviously, the, the, the ages... Of, if, you want to, if you want to use the child facilities, meaning the small soft play area, the baby sensory room, and the light-up floor, then, yes, you, you, you might pay. Baby... Sorry, what's a, what's a baby sensory room? The baby sensory room is a kind of a small room with kind of um, all, the, all the floor is kind of padded and yeah. all the walls are padded, and then on the walls in different areas, they've got certain toys in there, or they've got on one wall, like... Um, one was kind of material with little lights on it so the baby can touch it and kind of get kind of that kind of textual feedback there's like a a a mirror with lights in it so the mirror kind of reflects the lights there's like a large post which kind of changes color with mirrors and it just kind of obviously kind of these are for small for small babies these are kind of one-year-olds and younger it's just kind of that kind of textual element of being able to touch and be able to feel and be able to kind of play and, and look at all that stuff and my little boy absolutely loved it. He just sat there, just constantly, just with the, with the wall covered in kind of lights and uh, material, just stroking it for ages, having a whale of a time, just like me. That sounds Brilliant. lovely. Uh, uh, and please, please tell me that Jurassic Park has a uh, pun-based caffeinated drink, so like Velocilate. Oh, how long have you been sitting on that, Sam? I'll leave while you've gone quiet. I'm currently listing at a lot. Uh, uh, currently looking at a list of other prehistoric animals, trying to make other ones work, but I can't. I have to say, I, I mean, I, I, I went in with my my lovely wife and my little boy. I went in immediately, took my shoes off, and went and played with him. And my wife bought the drink, so I can't say if it was fantastic or not. Surely, 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 there's a T Rex. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I get it, yeah. Yeah, well done. And... <laughs> all right, that was... A, I mean, a laugh was what I was really going for, rather than, like, yes, that's clever. But, all right. <laughs> I admire the pun that you have made. <laughs> yeah. Um, good. But, yeah, um, I'll, 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 I'll tell you what, I'll put a picture on, on Twitter so people can understand the new type of coffee shop I know. Uh, that sounds frequent. really nice. That sounds really nice. It is, and it was really weird just seeing kind of... Because obviously adults are kind of going in in certain areas to to help with their children, so they might go into the soft play area. So obviously the kids, if they can't get around and stuff like that. So also mm. all the adults are kind of walking around barefoot as well. And it's just kind of a weirdly really relaxed environment because everyone's there for the same. Everyone's just there to help their kids play and stuff like that. And everyone's kind of really friendly. And it was just like a really strange and enjoyable environment to be in. And dinosaurs. <laughs> Chiteratops. Yeah. Well done. Well done. That that was a that... <laughs> chai teratops. Oh my god. But yeah, that's that's how I enjoyed my uh my the sunshine of my bank holiday in there. Actually the only other thing I did was I went uh I spent some more time indoors. This time I didn't bring Toby, because I don't think it was quite as appropriate. And uh I enjoyed the Christmas present that my wife bought me at Christmas. Which is when generally you Good. get Christmas presents. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that when you time. get Christmas presents. Um, and she'd bought um, me and her tickets to the Royal Shakespeare Company to see Macbeth, which Ooh. was fantastic. So oh, this is, is that the one with Chris Freckleston? Yeah, this is uh, Chris Freckleston as Macbeth and uh, Neve Cusack um, as Lady Macbeth. And we'd had a, we did have a. Um, a budget at Christmas. We budgeted kind of fifty pounds, and it's the one thing I really, really dislike about theatre. I find it, from a, from a cost perspective, really quite um, yeah, yeah, restrictive. Because I, I love going to the theatre, but I just can't afford it. And I, I mean, I live in London, where the most phenomenal theatre is, but I just can't afford it. 
and it needs to be like a really special occasion so we'd, we'd had we set ourselves a budget so obviously that usually rules it out but she was able to get um like really cheap tickets with kind of restricted view and often restricted view it's actually not that restricted I did send you guys a picture of my view, which literally had a large post going directly down the centre of the oh, stage. Man. So yeah. I just spent the entire. Don't get me wrong. I really, I still really enjoyed it. I did spend most of the time kind of just kind of leaning side to side around the post, depending on where the action was taking place. But hey, I got I got to see the RSC uh, for fifteen pounds. So, you know what? That's wow. all right. That's, That's really, really good. good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good play. It is. It's, it's and it is. It's one of our, one of kind of my and wife's favorites obviously we all have a history uh, with Macbeth we've all uh, been in it that's that's we were all in the same production of it. it's kind of where about 11 years ago yeah it's kind of where I met properly Chris and Pete yeah because I knew yeah. I knew Sam prior to that um I'd met Chris a couple of times and I'd met Pete once and thought he was a knob <laughs> yeah yeah second time the second meeting didn't that's help. my uh that's that's up. takes about fifteen or sixteen meetings to really. I'll be well, honest, because his ha- his hand was glued to a table at the time, which yeah, is why. Exactly, yeah. I'll be honest. Bloody, that, what an idiot! That is the that is the 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 generally the first impression is always this guy's a knob uh, that I get. Uh, but uh, but I like to think I, I like to think I sort of grind them down uh, with. Um, well, the, the, with the first time the first time I charm. met you was at an audition, and we were both waiting outside to audition for the for a play, and you were kind of just there saying, What's "Yeah, it? I've got a, I've got a place to be. I'm gonna have to just kind of like skip through this, you know. I mean, I've got, I'm really busy. I'm really just kind of really kind of yeah. nonchalantly. Yeah, <laughs> that's, I, just do, I that do these auditions like all the time. Yeah, I'm just kind of here. These miniatures won't paint themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've yeah, got places to be. <laughs> but I remember Pete because I remember Pete in that play. That was that, that was that one night we did the performance where you thought you'd done a scene that you hadn't yet yeah. done so you were out of your costume sat in the green room yeah. reading a magazine yeah. while i was upstairs waiting for you to come on stage with me and you just weren't there <laughs> and we were just panicking me and the other actors we were like okay i know his lines so we can just distribute them amongst us i mean the fact that he's king duncan is a bit of an oversight because we, he is crucial to the plot at this point yeah. um, and then suddenly you come running past us on stage without your costume yeah. which really confused the school kids that we were performing yeah. to I like to uh, I like to keep people on their toes. Uh, like, like an, <laughs> an element of danger, I always found, really adds to theatrical performances. Like it can get really staid and stale if you just like every night, oh, the same lines over and over again, the same emotions, the same the same staging. What you want sometimes is for a man to basically just like forget, very entirely forget to uh, to bother walking out onto stage at the right time, just to keep everyone thinking oh there's a bit of danger here i basically mm. i'll be honest with you william shakespeare didn't write any of his like you know he didn't write any of his scripts down so i think i was basically keeping to the spirit of the bard a lot more than you I'm, you guys I'm pretty sure he wrote his scripts down no he yeah. didn't like the ones that we have we have uh, surviving apart the the first folio weren't written directly down by him not most yeah, of them well, anyway. written, but no but he did write his stuff down no, he didn't. He, he didn't just, just went, make he it did. up on the hook. He did. No, he just incredible. They had Pete, incredible memories Pete, in Elizabeth. Pete, I just Pete. I've literally just finished. I've literally just reading. Finished reading James Shapiro's yeah. book, fifteen ninety nine, a year in the history of a year in the life of Shakespeare, a professor yeah. of Shakespeare. Yeah. In Go which on. he states about Shakespeare's writing process. Yeah. And yeah. how he would do several drafts of different yeah. plays. What what you're confusing is the fact that Go on. in Shakespeare's time, because paper was such a uh, a rare commodity the whole play wouldn't be written out as it is now yeah. so actors would only be given their lines yeah and 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 the scenes that they were in which yeah. is why you get lots of weird things in Shakespeare like oh you have stabbed me because they need to tell the actor that oh bloody hell I've been yeah, stabbed yeah, yeah. like because there's Sam, no like directions there's no general th- yeah but Sam, so, you, so yeah. in terms of like create curate cur- in terms of like creating the first folio it was curated from all these little bits that yeah. came down but to say that Shakespeare never wrote anything down <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just <laughs> ridiculous but, but Sam who are you right I know I'm right and who are you going to believe me or James <laughs> Shapiro PhD <laughs> Also, can I just throw my hat in the ring? I actually gave a lecture on Macbeth a couple of weeks ago to my first years. Yeah. Here's a fun fact for you, kids. Shakespeare 
here's a fun fact for you kids before this lecture put your pens down put your pens down but <laughs> yep. but mr chris we need this for the no no nope. no 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 because nope. shakespeare never not, wrote anything it's not, down it's not how he would have done it you yeah. but mr chris <laughs> no <laughs> chris no put it down yeah put the put the, put yeah. the he just had a good that's how that's how he memorized all of his stuff he was just like he just had a really good memory <laughs> Here's a fu- here's a fun fact though. Do you know why the play is superstitious? Why there's a superstition? Because the director we had, he would he would refuse to name the play. Do you remember? Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's because that generally, if a theatre was in trouble, um, like they weren't earning enough money from ticket sales, they would just throw on Macbeth because it, it was a guaranteed floor filler. Because you would have it's a short play, small cast, there's death in it, and um, audiences more lessening the plot. So that's generally why it has a superstition. So generally, if theatres were staging Macbeth, I'm not saying the RSC is in trouble, but generally, <laughs> if theatres were staging Macbeth, it meant that they were financially in some difficulty. Well, I'm sure the RSC have got to perform Macbeth at some point. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get, get, get through all the ones where everyone's like, okay, yeah, this is quaint, but we don't really want, you know, Titus the Andronicus. Yeah, we want the big boys. <laughs> But how do we know? He didn't write anything down. <laughs> no, exactly. Know? It's a, it's a, it's it's a it's an absolute <laughs> astonishment that we have any of his stuff left. Just, just off book instantaneously. Yeah. Is everyone off book? Yes, because I am. Eccleston and uh, Neve Cusack were fantastic. The supporting cast, well, all the main all the main characters and the main actors were great. Supporting cast, not so much. What about my man Keith Ness? I do, I don't know which. I have no idea. I have no idea who played Caithness or no, Menti. No one does. Do you know one of my favourite things? And this, this has not been self-indulgent. One of my favourite things happened. I always use it as an example with students about how the stage management team can be too literal with the instructions that is given to them by the director. Is when our our uh, mate Tim, who yeah. is playing the porter in that scene, he was supposed to walk on and you know urinate. It's a com- it's a bit of it's the only bit of comedy in the scene in the, in the play, and it's often cut and. Um, and he was like, how am I going to urinate on stage? And the director was like, oh, just get a lemon. So the, so the stage management team ran off. And so we did the port scene. Tim walks on, stands his back to the audience, <laughs> legs wide. And then we see him struggling. We can't understand why. And then like a couple of pips fall down. <laughs> like, yeah, like and, it's like, like a dribble of liquid. Rather than, you know, rather than because the director meant like a jiffy lemon, you know, for pancake day. And they're getting a whole lemon. <laughs> To just squeeze in <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God of War, Sam. <laughs> I, just really? got, I just got the greatest. That was the greatest transition ever. That's the greatest transition I've ever done. Is From it? Jif Lemon pissing oh. pips to God of War. Yeah. Who who and Kratos would have no problem passing tips. He was so. he would well he'd be angry about it. He's angry about everything. <laughs> He's well, angry he about everything. Tips for breakfast. Uh, Can um, yeah. do you think do you think now obviously we'll talk about the game in a moment. But do you think Dan can learn anything from God of War being a new dad and all? If he wants to be a standoffish dad, yeah, um, which I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah then definitely i mean it's kind of a weird experience god of war because this is the first since kratos was tricked into killing his first family um (laughs) and then went on a rampage about it for three games this is the first one where he's got a family and he has a, a a small child called atreus but Right. Because he's Kratos and Kratos is Kratos, he's still not kind of down with the whole like being a dad thing. Right. So they go hunting and they go killing together on rampages. And like it's a testament to how well the story's written and directed in general. And Atreus is always like pleading for his dad's like praise right. and attention uh, while they're both still grieving for the death of, of Atreus's mum and um kratos's wife and like kratos just and it's such a it just portrays this really really well just like you can see on kratos's face like him like fighting the like natural um parental and paternal urge to 
know, reward and encourage um, his offspring against his just like natural like the fact he is like a god who was bred for war like the, the like the two ends of the the magnet just don't just are constantly fighting against each other in this game and it's absolutely fantastic well like and it's like, kind of uh, like a sitcom not, not like, like a sitcom no it's not like <laughs> love me dad like no the, son it sounds like they're the ultimate it sounds like they're like the ultimate odd couple terry and jude <laughs> Um, no, because it's not really that they're at odds to each other. Because the whole, the whole premise of the game is that they're getting their Kratos' wife's ashes to the top of the mountain. So they're both like wanting and trying to achieve the same thing. It's just, Atreus is this kid who's been like sick a lot of his life. And it's not like Kratos ne- never shows him any compassion. Like he's very protective over him and just doesn't want him to get in any danger. But you also get the impression that he's not quite the son that he wanted. Like he's very um sensitive to a lot of the um uh, sort of mystical and magical things that are going on within this universe right and and that stuff that was passed down to him from his from his mum so i think where kratos's standoffishness comes from is not a sense that he is n- not really a sense that atreus is he's at odds with atreus it's just like atreus is his link to his his wife that has passed on and i think that's probably more of what he is challenging with than the fact that he doesn't like him or the fact that like he doesn't love him it's the fact that like this is his last link and he kind of wants to put put atreus at arm's length and and kind of get him at a point where he can protect himself hence like scared of losing him basically right but yeah it's absolutely incredible and and each one of you would find something in this game to love even if you've previously not been any fan of the god of war series i think it is it's the best game i played this year hands down and to kind of put it in really reductive terms um which i'm sure is what santa monica studios would love yeah is is it's basically the best game naughty dog never made and it's unique at the moment in the fact that it's probably one of it's definitely one of a very rare bunch of games which is a exclusive like first party title for a console that isn't a like paid for service game and isn't right. an open world and yeah, yeah. isn't uh you know a destiny or a fortnite or anything like that it's a completely coherent structured story that takes you on a journey from beginning to end and is very deliberate and it's very well designed and it's kind of weird that those games don't exist anymore like yeah I, like, I've, I've kind of talked about it in the past i think when i talked about playing titanfall it was because mm-hmm. seemingly all the big games were these expansive open world kind of you have to put 40 odd hours into it to really kind of yeah. get everything you need from it and that's for a lot of time that's just i don't have that time to put in yeah that, that level of and those kind of games if you step out of it for any length of time it's a struggle to get back into it because when you jump back in you don't then have the learning curve that you get at the start of every game so it's yeah. it's what as you kind of as you're pointing out there it's nice to have uh, a narrative driven game which yeah. you, you, you do you do get and open world games are all well and good i'm super super excited about red dead redemption 2 it's like one of my most looking forward to games but there's so much out there that sometimes it's just too much i i, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is sony's fastest selling exclusive i think I, I, I the market is massively hungry for this kind of game i think and especially as the big publishers like activision and ea and ubisoft are all about kind of like like the new uh what's it called beyond good and evil is a procedurally generated open world like adventure game and it's like mm, well does everything are you saying are you saying that the gaming community is getting agoraphobic so yeah well not that it's just that games now are being designed as well big like triple a games are being designed as a service and so it's just like so they're expecting you to buy a game like for ex- say for example the next call of duty which they've completely there's it's not going to have a single player on the next call of duty because it's going to be an always online multiplayer it's probably definitely going to have a battle royale mode and the idea is is that the company wants you to invest loads of time into it in order to get stuff out of it or it's like a free-to-play model like Fortnite, yep. where you've got to invest all the time into it 
putting money in for microtransactions in order to get stuff out of it. And the, and, I, and it's not that people are getting agoraphobic. It's just no one's got the time to dedicate to these massive, huge games that are like a game to service. So when something comes along, which is God of War, which is it, admittedly it's like a, it's still a 25, 30 hour experience, but it's a crafted experience from the ground up. It's like it takes you on a journey. Everything has been so finely tuned. So it's like a it's like an epic novel yeah. that you can kind of dip into without having to kind of buy the whole of the series necessarily. I don't to really appreciate. I don't necessarily it. think that it's it's true that like people don't have the time for all of the for 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 these games that are games of service these fortnights and stuff i think it's more like it's more like we've had such a glut of them that we don't have time for all of them like yeah that's what i mean like that but you just contra you just you know just contravene your own point by saying they don't it's not that we don't have time it's because we don't, we don't no, it's have not time. that we don't it's not that we don't have time for that kind of game individually no, no, no. it's we it, don't have time for all of them for all of them uh, right okay so I, okay i follow you so, so when something comes along which is so focused and pointed like god of war is i think people are just snapping it up because it's kind of like right this is something i can get on board this is something i know is going to end right yeah yeah yeah, and yeah. give me yeah. And, and, and give me some and give me some finality whereas like destiny and um assassin's uh, creed assassin's and creed yeah, yeah. they're all kind of re quite repetitive they can be quite repetitive though as well i think what yeah. you're with what you're saying is with a narrative the narrative is bringing you back as opposed to the gameplay with, with some of those more repetitive games you're going back to create increase your uh, character so if you miss yeah. a day it's not a big problem whereas with a narrative you want to go back to it you want to find out what's going to happen next and I think using using the comparison with Naughty Dog as you say I, I think the, the publishers of uh, God of War will be as happy about that that's what Naughty Dog have kind of built their success on in in recent years in the kind of their last mode of games built on the narrative and pushing forward so Pete you want to play more because you want to know what's going to happen next well and I think this is a probably a better game than anything Naughty Dog have done recently Ooh. I think it's a better game than Uncharted 4 certainly um and and they and they do steal heavily from the from the dna of, of of naughty dog games so um for example the action most of the action centers around the lake of nine which is a lake uh, in norse mythology which connects the nine realms so if you've seen any of the thor films like all of this is immediately kind of right um uh kind of familiar in terms of like the nine realms and all that kind of stuff and so it's like it's it's like that level in in Uncharted Four where you're going around that area in the desert, looking at places and discovering things, but times by ten. So it's not quite an open world. It's just a really finely crafted hub area, which has room where you're encouraged to explore. And everything you explore, there's something to find there, and a little bit of story and narrative to go with it, which is what Uncharted did really well. But this is kind of like okay pushed even further like they pushed the envelope to really explore what that that possibility could be and there's there's other things that like you know in uncharted 4 where you would be having a conversation and then you jump out of the car and then when you got back in the conversation would start exactly where yeah where it ended up this has the same thing but instead of having conversations someone's t t like telling there's a there's a character that joins you in the boat and as you're traveling from area to area he'll be t he'll be sharing like old Norse legends with your son and that when you get out like Kratos is really like there's no time for stories now boy and then the guy will be like oh okay then and then when you get back in the boat like he'll start the story up again from where he from exactly where he left off cool. and so you and 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 it's just like all those really lovely things in Uncharted that Naughty Dog did that grounded the player within the world but santa monica studios have kind of taken that and gone right, right how how can we really kind of implement them where they were like in uncharted it kind of felt like there were sort of proofs of concept that these are things that could work like here they're really well established within the dna of the game and there's other things like one of the things that impressed me so much about lost legacy is how the interaction between the two characters there so if you were doing a puzzle, the character who wasn't doing the puzzle, Nadine, would be like kind of like, oh, I think you're on the right path with this. 
or no, hang on, or if you've gone wrong, should be say, oh no, you did exactly what you did last time. That's where you went wrong. It'd be brilliant. There's like a narr- there's like a character within this game that's telling me where I'm getting stuff wrong yep. and yep. wrong and right. And I thought that's a really other than rather than having like a a blinking light or a hint system which tells you where I'm going wrong, it's a character within the thing. And that's what Atreus does in God of War. But he's there doing it all the time. Like he's going to like Kratos. Like oh maybe we should like move there and like Kratos is kind of like don't tell me what to do boy but secretly like yeah i think actually you're on the right path and i think the biggest technical achievement of god of war and the thing that astounds me the most and santa monica studio have a really rich heritage of being able to again with the naughty dog comparison continues of being able to push the console that they that they're working on really really hard yeah um it was a reason why I played God of War three because it was uh, an example of a game that really pushed the PS three to its to its um, sort of peak performance, and God of War just is my fan on my PS four is on pretty much constantly while this while this game is running mm. because it's pushing the graphics on this far beyond really any depth of fidelity that that Uncharted was doing, and the technical achievement that they do this on, and I think Dan, you'd really love this. I know Chris really loves this as an idea. Is the entire game takes place in one single camera shot. The camera never breaks away. It never cuts. It never leaves Kratos' side. There's no blackout loading screens. The camera is there all the time in exactly the same yeah, sort I, I of would tracking, like tracking position. Correct. And I just think that is... An, it's like someone standing there with a handicam on Kratos' shoulder the whole game. For 30 hours. For 30 hours and never breaks away. And it has such a profound effect on how you view Kratos because it doesn't... Because it makes... It just grounds the game. The Russos in... Um, I was watching a documentary about the Russos and filming stuff in Avengers Infinity War. And they were saying in this one scene that it was in the, it's in the scene uh, where Thor meets the Guardians. And they were like, because this is a very... Because this is a scene featuring very fantastical characters, we used a handycam so it grounded the shot. So it didn't like add anything to their supernaturalness or their you know uh spaciness so use the handicam to like ground the shot and make it feel very real make it very feel very human and i feel like that's exactly what santa monica studios gone with their like tracking shot because it makes you feel very real very in the moment whereas in previous god of war games you kind of just feel like a little bit like an ant in a like just doing hack and slash stuff you never really get a, a real sense of Kratos's power and then finally <laughs> the real the other really satisfying great is his axe and it's and it's the fact that um Kratos has a Leviathan axe that acts exactly like Molnir and you throw it and no matter where you throw it no matter what you do with it you press a button and it calls back straight to his hand and that is just the it's the most satisfying feeling I've ever had in a game like just throwing an axe into an enemy and then waiting for another enemy to come in front of it calling it back so it goes through that other enemy and then you kill them both at the same time that's cool or like I'll just be yeah. like oh you know that scene in um in Thor Ragnarok where um uh, Thor calls his hammer while he's in the Sanctum Sanctorum and you hear it like crashing through all the things as you're waiting for it to come back when it finally comes to his hand like I just do that I'll just wander around <laughs> throw, the, throw the axe like carry on wandering with Atreus for five or five or ten minutes and then just call the axe and just like stand there waiting like do 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 hearing all this like and just calling it back it, it's absolutely fantastic I, I recommend all of you to play it such I mean, I, I certainly uh, this wasn't really on my radar. Was something I wanted to play. You've had, you certainly made me want to play it now. Um, mm-hmm. I've never played any of the God of War series. Um, no. Does that matter? Um, I think it would only matter in narratively. No. Um, but I think it would only matter in terms of the combat. I I would recommend this game to you, Dan, in every single way. Other and the only thing I'd worry about, and it's the same with Chris, is that I worry that you wouldn't find the combat very easy to get on with. Um, the closest sort of comparison I can give it to is it's a lot like the close quarters combat in Horizon Zero Dawn. So it's based on like heavy and light attacks um, and mixing up those with like with like blocking and parrying your enemies in order to get like a a advantage in to kill them but saying that it's also it's also quite forgiving so you can just if you're in a bind you can just kind of like spam 
quite a lot of the time. Would and you would you compare it in any way? I'm trying to think of because I haven't played uh, Horizon Zero Dawn either. So I'm trying to just think of games potentially that so similar. Would you compare it to something like um, the combat system from the Arkham games, the Batman Arkham games, or am I just completely um, off any different direction with that? A, a little bit. You get you get you do get things like notice when a, an enemy is like behind you and a chance to um, block them. Uh, it's not it's there's no sort of focus on it as being as fluid as the Arkham game. So in the Arkham, you just pressed a button when an enemy was on you and Batman would just turn around yeah. and automatically block. That's more of a manual process mm-hmm. in here. But then you're also never really in a position where you're being like crowded by so many enemies, um, at least not in the early game. By the time that you're experiencing bigger, bigger monsters and bigger enemies, then you would have learned the abilities to to handle them at the time that everything is kind of drip fed to you quite early on so you do get a, a good handle of how the combat works and it is satisfying enough that um it's it's just really enjoy it's really enjoyable to play and you can just like spam enemies with your axe from afar and you know do stuff like that and atreus fires and fires arrows to like stun other enemies and keep them off your back so that i think they've made a very conscious effort to put things in that that help the player with the combat. I think it's probably this. It will be the only sticking point for some people that to enjoy it. Maybe. Why well, you can consider this a new addition to my gaming wish list. Good. Peter, hello. Peter, Peter, hello. Peter. That's me. Do you like Agatha Christie? Books? I do like Agatha Christie books. Loves him a bit of Poirot. Okay. I love a little bit. A bit of Poirot. Daniel is actually holding up there the book that I'm about to talk right. about because I bought it him lest we forget. <laughs> As his secret Santa, oh. and it's one. Of, have you ever had that where you bought a gift for a mate and thinking, actually, I, actually, I really wanted that. Yeah, I have, and I have, um, to, I have to say, Chris, before, before we get into this, and before um, I, I haven't read the book yet. I no. when I when I got it, we did a secret Santa. I'm doing other stuff. I'm a busy boy. Um, we had a secret Santa where we had to kind of give an idea of what we wanted. I think I asked for an interesting novel, something that was a bit different. Yeah. Um, what I didn't want was kind of a, just a bog standard crime novel. And when I opened up this gift. At first glance, it appeared to be a bog standard crime novel. Bloody hell, Chris! Um, yeah, and obviously I still I still haven't read it, but I now know I know and said a bit more about it, and I know it's not it's no longer a bog standard crime novel. So I I, I take back my original kind of uh, harumphing. You're retracting it. Any, any any initial harumphing, I I sincerely take back. Okay, so this is a book by Anthony Horowitz. Uh, and it's a love letter to Agatha Christie. If you're a big fan of murder mysteries, and as it's getting hotter outside, as we talked about before, the light is lingering onwards even more so now. And Pete's it's playing Manhunt. Read. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when and it's a great book to read by the pool as a kind of a summer holiday read. Right. It's kind of light and frothy, yeah. um, and that's not to render it a disservice. It's it's perfect for those people who, like myself, love a bit of Agatha no, Christie as no, a kind Chris. of. Chris, is it really? Because you were reading this on the great European trip and you described it... It was to really balance out the curse of people. <laughs> yeah, but you, you described it to me as a book within a book, which to me doesn't scream, holiday by the sun read! Yeah. Or wherever I'm by. Like, if I've got to... If I've got to you know, but Chris, but Chris, if I've got to hold two narratives in my head, um, which I'm more than capable of doing, but like, it's not that's not generally the light and frothy reading that yeah okay well it's not it's not like the extent to say something like david mitchell's cloud atlas which is like this russian doll yeah of stories but basically it's um it's written from uh the point of view of an editor who is working for a publishing house and their their favorite one of their most popular authors who's a murder mystery writer has just submitted a manuscript and she's looking forward to reading it and then you actually read the whole novel within that right. and it is like a love letter to Poirot it's 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 like Midsummer Murders it's set in this little sleepy village and a murder has taken place and you introduced all the different characters and you find yourself kind of plotting okay who did this who did that this kind of thing and then the book just ends before you've got to that final reveal right. and you're like oh okay I'm back with the editor now and she's equally as frustrated as you are and she realises and it says this on the blurb at the back of the book so I'm not spoiling it that um, the author had had hidden um, aspects of their life in this book. So as well as the kind of the mystery, the, the traditional murder mystery that you have to solve, you're also trying to solve the mystery as to 
this author, what happened to them and their life and what has been hidden within the novel you've just read within this novel. And the rest of the book is not only trying to find that last chapter to get that kind of resolve, but it's also about trying to kind of piece together the life of this author who wrote this book. So it's this really interesting um, novel within a novel. It's a love letter, as I said before, to Agatha Christie. So it's very self-aware of the subject matter it's ripping off. And for me, who's brought up reading Agatha Christie, you kind of get that lovely kind of thrill of that kind of knowledge of that fact. There's something quite lovely about that, reading it. So it's, it's for those who love murder mysteries and you want two for the price of one, then I can recommend The Magpie Murders. Mm. So the thing I like about Agatha Christie novels is that they sparkle with this kind of speed and very... You, you, you understand who the characters are very, very quickly because she kind of works a fair bit with stereotypes. Not in a... Not in a yes. Well, not in anything that I've read. I mean, there's the a little rule, bit. The, of the that. rule of four is a pretty dodgy example. No, not the rule of four. The the big four is a pretty dodgy yeah. example. Yeah. So like, so yeah. she, she, but she, so she also, um, but she she does it a lot with. Uh, so for example, with um, Murder on the Orient Express, you you understand who those characters are within a couple of pages of like meeting them, right? Like you get them and who yeah. they motivate. What you know, start to think about what those motivations are. I mean, it's a nice book. It's a good book for the summer holiday. Um, it's not Wittgenstein, but what is? No, yeah. <laughs> thank, thank Christ, in, in all honesty. Uh, that someone else isn't reading that book. Um, yeah, at least, well, at least you're not reading It by Stephen King, which is... I've read that book. That is <sighs> a war of attrition. Yeah, it is. It, it literally is. It's really, it's, I mean, it's interesting, but it's. I keep on reading it before I go to bed and it's not the best book to read before you go to bed because Stephen King has a wonderful habit of writing long, boring, drawn-out scenes where nothing much happens which Woo! are actually quite relaxing and meditative Right. and then suddenly a vampire will turn up that's got razor blades for teeth and Sweet! Then... <laughs> and then it's kind of like, well, really, well, I'm not, I'm not reading for a... For for a bit so i've 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 mit I've, I've i've decided to mitigate that by reading i've i've found myself reading a lot of science fiction books because i think i think that even though i enjoy reading horror i figure that like science fiction is just horror for wimps um, right right because well it well it is isn't it because all horror books are is science fiction books but you don't have to explain the science behind it it's just like oh yeah this thing can do this now isn't that scary like it's like magic, but it can kill you. Um. <laughs> the the uh, a number of Hugo Award winners are currently spinning in their graves. But yeah, all right. I've I've been reading a book which I think was like one of the first translated, or, or maybe one of the first Chinese books to be awarded the Hugo Award. Right. The Three Body Problem, written by Sushin Liu, and uh, which I probably butchered as a pronunciation. But my God, it's an incredible book. It is one of the best science fiction books I've read in a long time. And I've recently read a massive glut of them, as I was saying. So I read um, The Power uh, by Naomi Alderman, which I've lent to Chris. And if you've read and liked World War Z, then you'll love that book. That's incredible. Brilliant. That imagines a world where women find out that they can, all the female population find out that they can generate electricity from their hands and how that changes the uh, gender imbalance and right. power struggles within society. But it's written a lot like World War Z, as in like from diary format. And then I read the The Expanse, which I've got the second one to read, and Interworld, which is Neil Gaiman's and Michael Reeves's sort of science fiction young adult novel, which is okay. But the three body problem was absolutely fantastic. I've I was halfway through it before I ordered the second one in the trilogy. The four body problem. <laughs> it's a bit it's it's difficult to describe because if you like sci fi and especially sort of very hard sci-fi in a way like that expanse level of real th of almost you could believe this science existing and it is possible in the real world then this then this is essentially like the next sci-fi book that you should read it's set in the backdrop of the cultural revolution in china in the late 1960s uh -huh. 
a time when um, like science and free thinking was very much on the back burner, was considered against the revolution that like these Western ideals and, you know, Ein- the fact that like Einstein was banned from visiting China and that all plays into these thoughts that like people who had these like radical ideas of how the world works, that wasn't accepted as part of like the the Chinese culture at the time. So that's the sort of the staging of this of this book and it uses that idea of science being of becoming a very controlled thing and very marginalized thing and how that and and the effect that 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 has on the world because obviously like it plays on it and and imagines like a future that obviously we don't exist with is it's a science fiction book and it and it and it and it plays with the idea of like do we actually and i think you would like it for this reason pete like do we actually deserve the world that that we inhabit considering the way that we've treated it right okay and like what role science has played in and especially like the curtailing of science and the and the stranglehold of it what effect that's had on like on our like progression throughout the world and how we use science like instead of creating like environmental in ways to like save the environment instead we created the atom bomb and and all that kind of stuff and there's there's low there's so much more that happens in the book but i really don't want to say anything because of because of how the book plays out anything really revelatory i say and it happens in about the third act like everything right. kind of builds up to this massive moment where there's this big sea change of where you realize where everything's been leading to and like science aside and what it has to say about our role as sort of um uh, our role as uh, sort of lodgers on this planet and how we've treated it and if we deserve to actually stay on it as a species like just as a book it's really well paced and some weird translating aside like it's such an interesting read and it and like how it plays out is really interesting to the point where i generally didn't know where it was going to go until the end and i've just i just finished it today and i can't wait to read the second part because how it essentially is going to be playing out is just incredibly interesting as a narrative um so yeah if you like sci-fi i recommend that and if you like the murder then that's that magpie one that chris is talking about well uh talking about award winners um, I'm just finishing up because uh, you got me uh, that June video game, Sam. Oh, all right, are you reading June? Yeah, because <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought I better prepare before I start playing it. Well, that's the Peter Willington way, right? <sighs> um, and it's a Nebula. It's a Nebula. It was the first Nebula Award winner, and it was a Hugo Award winner. And apparently, there's a movie in it with Sting or something like that. Uh, yeah, there's also a very good miniseries that Sci-Fi did years yeah, ago. Apparently, there's that, but I didn't. I didn't go in for any of that. I got the audiobook instead uh, of the first one. And um, I, it's been a while since like I read Sci-Fi, but it feels way more fantasy than than Sci-Fi. Like it's really neat. Have you have you any any of you read it? No. Oh, it's, no, I'm but familiar I can, with I can, the movie, but oh, it's so epic. Like, yeah, I wouldn't consider that's that's the thing. Like, I wouldn't, um, like, I wouldn't consider that really a sci-fi. Like, I think I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? Because it kind of like plays on science fiction does straddle this boundary between horror and fantasy. Yep. Where it's like it can ground itself in a little bit of science. Like the Expanse and the Three Body Problem do it because they are actually playing on like the expanse plays on the the actual effect space travel would have on the human body yeah and that plays into the narrative like characters can't get from this place to this place without suffering these consequences or they literally can't do this yeah. because of physics yeah. and in the three body problem it's kind of like the the antagonist in it is able to affect the earth this way because of how they've used science to get to that to get to that point and they use science as a political tool so yep. so that to me makes more sense as science fiction whereas dune has always struck me as a fantasy novel as a high like a, a science-based fantasy novel because it's got giant worms in and spice i think i think the thing that i've really appreciated about it is it's starting to make me understand why why people who like regular things like uh <laughs> like like game of thrones Okay. What do you mean by regular things? Well, like things where, like, like the 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 like stuff that's in the in the general sort of 
common parlance. Do you know what I mean? Like stuff that people are like into at the moment, right? Like I can totally uh-huh. see why people are into Game of Thrones because when, in Dune, it is all about like deception and intrigue and people mm-hmm. murdering one another and like characters who you think are going to stick around for a really long time, like getting it in the back, like yeah. within, you know, within like half, like halfway through the book. And it's, it's thrilling. I'm getting towards the end of it now, and there's there's like four or five more of these that were written by um, Frank Herbert, and then there were a few more by his son. Who, side note, I reckon he edits the Wikipedia page because <laughs> like, every <laughs> single time, every single time Frank Herbert is mentioned in in relation to Dune, there's always a brackets at the end and the follow up books by his son. Like, and it's like, <laughs> mm, <laughs> hello, uh, but um, but. I, I see those and I'm getting that that jonesing of like leaning into this as a series because like I'm not going to because I've got I've already got too much to be getting on with but like uh, not for a while anyway but I can see this being like a big book I've never been into a big book series since the Willard Price adventure books so like so like yeah like it, it feels like a really interesting um, it feels it feels fun to actually kind of understand why people like reading a series mm-hmm. which is just something i've not really been into for a while um uh by the way the dinosaur and cafe related pun you're looking for is yin long island iced tea it's the best i've come up with for the last well that's what? a cocktail the so. first 45 minutes no long yeah. island long, long island iced tea is like is like a tea it's based a beverage right it's a cocktail it's a cocktail. Oh, bollocks. That's taken me an Which hour. Which I'm sure they're serving in Dan's local independent child and adult. <sighs> what was the what was the dinosaur aspect of the pun? Oh, wait, 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 wait. I could do better. Yin Long Black. Long Black is apparently like a a kind of... Is, is another name for What's an Americano. What's Yin Long? A Yin Long. A Yin Long, uh, or Hidden Dragon, was a <laughs> 1.2 meter long ceratopian herbivorous Chinese found mid Jurassic this, this dinosaur. Just, this is just knowledge straight off the dome, isn't it? That was Staying In with Dan Frost, Sam Turner, Peter Wonnington, and myself, Chris Darby. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to us. We are on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Acast, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. So what better way to make sure you don't miss another episode? If you'd like to leave us a review too, we'd be really grateful. Visit stayingin.podbean.com for more information and links to all the things we've covered in this episode. And come find us on Facebook or on Twitter, at StayingInPod. Thanks for listening.